very pleased today to be joined by Washington Post columnist, author of The Plum Line, Greg Sargent, by my estimation, one of the best, most astute columnist observers of this moment in American life over the last seven years. As you know, if you tune into this, something that I regard as an ongoing event uh, that has taken another mighty turn over this weekend. Greg Sargent, welcome. Thanks for having me on, Steve. Before going on, what is your initial reaction to the change in the world that's occurred since you left work on Friday and returned on Monday? It's different. Yeah, I mean, obviously, absolutely horrifying. The attacks on Israelis are just, you know, contemptible and 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 disgusting, and there really aren't enough words to to condemn them. Uh, I I do hope that. Um, that the two parties can come together at this time in order to address this crisis in a, in, in a, in a balanced way without, you know, too much politicization creeping into it. I want to step back out from the American domestic label and talk about what we're seeing globally play out. And I can't imagine another instance where there would be an attack like this and there would be marches of support all over the world uh, celebrating the Hamas attack, including in uh, New York City, uh, sponsored by the Democratic Socialists uh, of America. Yeah, I mean, it's, it, it's, it's absolutely horrible. I, I would point out that, that, you know, the vast majority of progressives who have been critical of Israel have been very forceful in condemning the attack as well. So that was, I think, heartening to see and, and, and uh, shows that, that, that this really has made it very hard for, to, for anyone who considers him or herself mainstream in the United States to adopt anything like the positions you're talking about. And, and so when you think about those positions um, and you think about those protests, what is it that we're seeing? Is that anti-Semitism of our forefathers uh, stripe that we're seeing manifest itself, assert itself in uh, city squares all over the world. The idea that the murdered Jews would be blamed for their murders is an extraordinary sentiment, but one that can't be detached from the whole sweep of history. Um, and the specter of Jew hatred that that has existed since the beginnings of time. Oh, absolutely. I, I don't I think it's indistinguishable from that sort of anti-Semitism. And and I do want to continue to emphasize that many of the people who have criticized Israel over the years have found their way to the right position on this fairly rapidly and really unequivocally. Um, and I think that that's a real sign, that's a heartening sign in many ways of, of, of where the real center of opinion lies on these things globally, too. What do you think happens next when you see a military operation uh, that will see house-to-house -house combat in the most densely populated 
piece of land with humans living on it anywhere on earth. We're at a moment right now where Hamas terrorists are still gunning down uh, Israelis or will or were as of eight, nine hours ago um, as the IDF secures the secures the country. When you see globally the type of bloodshed, the type of civilian casualties that are an inescapable part of war, uh, when you look in March of 1945, the firebombing of Tokyo, the United States in one night killed 120,000 Japanese um, in a military action, most of them, most of them civilians. Um, this will not be surgical. Uh, this can't be surgical. Um, Hamas has intermingled its military command structure uh, in civilian neighborhoods. What what do you see playing out over the next couple of weeks, and how does that impact here at home domestically, and how does it intersect with Ukraine? Well, I'd love to ask you about a pretty key element here, which is that the Republican Party um, has adopted very rapidly as the party-wide position that President Biden's weakness is somehow to blame for what's happening there, including a really trumped up and, and wildly um, false uh, set of alle allegations involving funding, you, which you've probably seen widely debunked and yet pushed by lots and lots of supposedly senior people, supposedly responsible people in the Republican Party. I, I think that's going to only escalate. The more chaos we see, the more bloodshed we see, the more we're going to hear from Republicans along those lines. And we've seen this before in the aftermath of, uh, of September 11th. Something very similar happened when Karl Rove essentially said pretty clearly uh, to Republicans, you know, you can take this to the country and win the argument. We, we're now seeing the chairperson of the Republican National Committee saying almost exactly the same thing. Well, you, you were, you've been around the Republican Party for, for a while. What, what do you think of that? <laughs> I've been away from it for a while also. What I would say about this moment in time is that you have reawakened in the United States a version of the American Bund. The American First Movement is in fact the American first movement. I think that one of the singular failures, right, of the media in the country by way of explanation to the American people regarding what's happening around them is the inability to make these connections and to explain, right? So in 1940, uh, in an extraordinary congressional vote, uh, Franklin Roosevelt was able to maintain the draft by one vote, one vote in 1940. Uh, had the American army ceased its draft in 1940, by December 7th, 1941 or earlier, the results would have been catastrophic. It, it means that the American army wouldn't have been ready for a cross-channel invasion before at least 1946, if it was possible at all. So, so this is one of the most decisive votes that's ever taken place as a matter of voting 
in human history. And there is a broad amnesia in American history. If you say to your average American, Charles Lindbergh, and you, you find someone in the small, small percentage who has any recollection of who he is or knowledge of who he is, he'll be remembered as an aviator, not as a fascist, not as a Nazi, not as someone who was decorated by the Nazi government who gave a speech on the eve of World War II attacking, attacking the Jews. And so we have seen that movement come back to life. It has an intellectual spine out of the Claremont Institute. It has a strategy. It has a plan. It has it has an agenda. It has a philosophy. It has a it has a point of view. The second part about what you said is a fundamental one: chaos. Chaos as a means to an end, and in the moment, an end itself. Who benefits in the American election cycle from chaos? Is it Joe Biden? Is it the responsible governing party? Or is it the agent of chaos, the strongman candidate running on a platform of demagogy like Adolf Hitler, who in 1932 came to power on a promise to stop the chaos that he had incited and ignited. And he did stop the chaos. There was no more chaos in, in German society. Six months after, he took political power. And so that's what we're seeing. That's what we're looking at, right, in this moment is a chaos movement with the intent to offer as a choice to the American people a chance to end the chaos by picking the people who have started it to lead the country. And, and yeah. that has not typically turned out well wherever you see that scenario play out in history. I, I think it's you raised a really important point. Also, another important point with that parallel, which is the notion that, um, that, that there's somehow a, a genuine streak of, quote unquote, isolationism behind the movement among Republicans against funding the Ukraine self-defense against Russian invasion. Uh, the idea that that's isolationist really misses the point. Um, it, it's, I, I wouldn't say this about all Republicans who oppose funding for Ukraine, but there's certainly a caucus within that group of Republicans who seems okay with a Putin victory in the Ukraine-Russia conflict. Um, and, and, to call it isolationism, that's a mistake that many in the media make constantly. They've also made that same mistake about Trump. This is not isolationism. This is a situation where uh, one country tried to devour another and is trying to literally erase the other country's nationhood. Um, it's genocidal uh, conquest. And so to oppose aiding Ukraine in some ways, there's no way to call that a really an anti-war position that I can see. War is happening, right? Russia's waging violent conquest against a, a sovereign state and trying to essentially obliterate it. And so I really wish that we could get beyond calling this kind of, by the way, the same mistake was is still applied back to the America First movement during World War II, as, as you know. 
Well, this is a this is a movement of fellow travelers. They look at Vladimir Putin. They look at the revanchism. They look at the uh, Christian orthodoxy uh, from the church. They look at uh, the hostility to the concepts of modern small L liberalism, small P pluralism, and they fetishize Vladimir Putin. And, and there is a fundamental misunderstanding that endangers all of us, that endangers the peace of the world. And it's, and it's very simply this. This war in Ukraine cannot expand for Russia beyond Ukraine's borders so long as Ukraine is winning that war. As soon as Ukraine is in a position uh, where they stand on the edge of defeat, uh, that war will spread uh, beyond, uh, beyond those borders. And so in this moment now uh, in Israel, you see a conflict uh, zone that stretches uh, from Iran across the Levant, um, now from southern Israel to the northern border with Lebanon. Um, could be soon through Lebanon, across all of Syria to the southern border of Turkey. Uh, you have armed conflict in the in the Black Sea. Uh, you have troops on the border between Kosovo and Serbia, and you have a massive humanitarian crisis playing out in the armed conflict between Azerbaijan and Armenia, with the Russian sphere of influence being pushed, being rolled back in all of those places, but it's in the Middle East where the Russian-Iran access with regard to Israel can be forward-leaning in this moment, has the ability to incite the type of chaos that lights the world on fire. And I think we're seeing that play out. Yeah, I mean, I think you brought up, you asked a little bit earlier about what's the connection between what we're seeing unfold in in, in, in Israel and what uh, what's going to happen with the Ukraine war. You may have seen this, but some Ukrainian some Ukrainian officials were out there pretty quickly saying that they fear that if attention gets diverted to the Israeli uh, to the Israeli uh, situation, um, that it could actually remove the world's attention from what's happening in Ukraine. Now, obviously, the Israeli situation does command attention, but we do have to hope that it doesn't pull us away from what's happening in Ukraine. As you say, these things are connected, and I can see why these Ukrainian officials are, are so frightened. The other issue that's connected to this, of course, is Taiwan, as the world is watching and distracting in the capacity of the United States in the Middle East, arming Ukraine, um, needs to maintain vigilance in the, in the Pacific as well. But the world uh, has taken a mighty step uh, towards the type of chaos uh, that uh, people our age uh, tended to once believe uh, was a function of their parents' lifetime, uh, that in the world where the Berlin Wall came down, uh, where Francis Fukuyama posited that history had come to its functional end, uh, we've been reminded that that's not the case at all over this weekend. And, you know, the world grows ever more dangerous, I think. Yeah, I think there's no question. This is going to really call on President Biden to maybe summon up some communication skills that are not always in evidence, to put it, uh, to put it gently. Uh, he's going to really have to explain to people that they can't fall into a type of despair 
about the chaos as you're talking about um, that leads them to think that uh, the siren song of authoritarian strongmen is, is the way forward. He's got to reiterate the case for a rules-based order um, and say that what we're seeing in both these places is connected in that sense. And, and I really hope that, that he, he does that. I think we haven't seen much of him in the past 24 to 48 hours. And, and I really, I don't see how that can continue. Do you? I do not at all. Um, and it brings up two aspects. Um, but I want to talk about the domestic politics aspect of this with you really quickly. And I want to say to our audience on the on the warning, who often ask me, what should I read? Where can I go? What opinions can I seek that will help explain and clarify? And let me be clear that this guy is one of one of those people, I think one of the most astute observers, somebody that I read uh, and, and when I get done reading is one of the few people I'm like right on, spot on, right all the time which means, you know, we're either right together or wrong together on a on a bunch of this stuff. Probably wrong. To hear your take on something that I saw this weekend, and I, I really watched it with my mouth hanging open on CNN. And it's an interview with a Republican congressman who represents one of the most Jewish districts in the country, who by the voting record has a, has a moderate-ish or as moderate as you can find in the Republican Party, Congressman Lawler from, from New York. And, and so he's on television, and he is emotional in, a, in this moment, right, of the, of the terror attack, not as a congressman representing one of the most Jewish districts in the country, not as a Jew, so far as I could tell, but because Kevin McCarthy was deposed and he really loves Kevin McCarthy. And so really quickly, right, the conversation spirals into, well, if we don't get my Kevin back into the speaker's role, somehow the right existence of the Jewish people, the state of Israel, right, American democracy is threatened. And I'm, I'm watching this. It's extraordinary. And then he says, it was eight Republicans and all the Democrats who were responsible for deposing Kevin. And I say, well, okay. And my question is this. How is it possible politically for the Democratic Party to be unable to articulate and explain why they have no interest whatsoever in saving the political career of the most dishonest, cynical man who has ever held that office, who single-handedly, single-handedly, Resuscitated, resuscitated the career of the seditionist president and who is impeaching the current president in a kangaroo court process and who has been involved in lying to the country thousands of times. It's a matter of politics. Explain how it is possible 
in your estimation that you cannot communicate as an institution and an effective response to Lawler's victimization speech okay. that put out on CNN. I, I, I just, I've never seen anything like it. Okay. Yeah, it's a good question. I would say that some Democrats actually have managed to push back effectively against the arguments that you're talking about. AOC did some some pretty strong stuff, um, and so did uh, Jamie Raskin. Um, you know, a lot of the House members who have really dealt, looked into the belly, into the eyes of the beast of the Republican Party in, in, under Trump in a way that maybe not all Democrats have, right? Raskin having, you know, presided over impeachment and the January 6th committee and so forth. These these guys, I do think there are a fair amount of Democrats out there who are articulating the case you're talking about, but but not all of them. And I'll answer your question this way. I think far too many Democrats are susceptible to the argument that they're not in some sense institutionalists, right? That they're not standing up for the institutions that they uh are part of and value and so forth. And so when a news commentator, whether it's a a CNN type or a New York Times columnist or whoever, suggests that Democrats should step in and save McCarthy for the good of the country, their immediate instinct is to think, well, maybe there might be something to that. We can't be like them, right? Um, but in this case, as you say, it's incredibly clear, clear cut. The right thing to do on behalf of the country was to not save Kevin McCarthy. Um, Kevin McCarthy has played uh, a form of double dealing with Trump around the insurrection for, for years. Uh, he was literally uh, threatened. His own life was threatened at one point during the, uh, the, the attack on the Capitol. And Donald Trump reportedly was pretty happy about it, telling Kevin McCarthy, you know, well, maybe you should have stolen the election for me, Kevin, and you wouldn't be facing these guys, these angry, uh, these, the angry mob. Uh, Kevin McCarthy lied relentlessly about uh, the January 6th committee, trying to delegitimize what was a perfectly good faith effort to have a bipartisan response to the greatest outbreak of political violence in modern times, right? Kevin McCarthy decided that the health of the Republican Party required mending fences with Trump uh, and pretending January 6th never happened. And he did that. Um, And as you say, Kevin McCarthy is now pursuing a a bullshit impeachment process that's clearly designed to uh, draw attention away from Trump's alleged crimes and, and corruption. The the list is endless Um, and breaking his own word too, as part of the fiscal talks. Democrats can't save that guy. If they were to save Kevin McCarthy, what it would do is essentially whitewash away the Republican Party's flirtations with Donald Trump and their enable, active enabling of him uh, all throughout. Really one of the worst assaults on our institutions we've seen. I, it's, it's unthinkable. I'm, it's, it's shocking that normally intelligent people would even suggest that. Let's talk about Israel for a second. Some Americans may not be aware that Israeli society has been convulsed over the last eight months by domestic proposal by Bibi Netanyahu uh, that would, it will sound familiar to Americans, 
that would strip the judiciary of its independence, uh, that would have the effect of essentially ending Bibi Netanyahu's vulnerability uh, to a massive uh, series of interlocking corruption allegations, trials, so on and so forth. And so the cabinet uh, that Bibi Netanyahu put together is, uh, generously speaking, is the kookiest and most extreme in Israeli history. Um, the United States is now a uh, important stakeholder, uh, particularly with Americans uh, killed and captured. So the continuation of uh, Netanyahu's extremist nutty cabinet, as opposed to a unity government um, that is prepared to make a moral argument uh, about a very difficult war ahead on the on the global stage is something that's well within the purview of the United States, um, well within the purview of the United States to care a lot about. But you've had eight months of chaos in Israel. You had uh, senior security officials say, uh, our national security in Israel has never been weaker. Uh, the government has never been more distracted. Um, the cause of the distraction um, was the subordination of the national interest below the ego, below the personal ambition of a politician who has dominated the culture, the society, through the scale of his ambition, his dishonesties, his ego, all the way across the board. And so it comes to be on a Saturday morning on Shabbat, paragliders carrying Hamas terrorists by sea, by land. They crash through billions of dollars of defenses. They catch the world's most sophisticated intelligence agency, uh, according to most intelligence agencies, completely flat-footed. Like gun violence in America, in the middle of a shocking event, a lot of politicians um, have a go-to device, which is, well, now's not the time to talk about this. Um, I'm a guy who's very much in the camp now is exactly the time uh, to talk about this. And we have to talk about uh, more than one thing at a time. Do you think there's a lesson for Americans here? This is an attack that if it had happened in the United States, would have killed 30,000 of us. Brought on at the tail end of a period of unbelievable domestic instability caused by politics, caused by a man, a faction, caused by extremism. And then... The illusion is shattered. The enemy waits. The enemy watches. They made a calculation and they made an assessment and these things are linked. You think there's a lesson for Americans here? I think if I understand you right, what you're suggesting is that if a, a, an extreme right-wing minority faction in a country is trying to break the government and break our institutions and pretty much 
every which way it possibly can, that the people of the country need to really understand that that's going to blow up in their faces before long. That's what you're saying, right? Exactly what I'm saying. This guy was distracted. This guy threw his country into chaos because chaos was in his political interest. And this is the result of the chaos, clearly. Yeah, I mean, we've seen we've seen it happen here in a different type of way. I'm not drawing a parallel here, but just trying to to address the underlying point you're making. When when Trump uh, was hit with one of the biggest crises this country ever has ever seen with the COVID with the with the uh, the COVID uh, pandemic, uh, we really saw the price of broken institutions and and a movement that lives to essentially destroy the possibility of serious sustained collective action by government in the in the face of challenges and i would hope that people don't take the lesson from this to go back to what you said earlier that the answer is the person who is telling you your institutions are corrupt and only i can fix it but the opposite it's when autocrats like that try to destroy our institutions that we're left less prepared to deal with the most serious challenges we face. I want to I ask you a direct question that you raised, Ed. I um, have noticed it. Um, I suspect the American people have noticed it. Um, in all of the coverage um, through last night at midnight, and I watched a lot of it, I haven't seen anybody from the American government, as we have a carrier strike group steaming towards the Israeli coast in the eastern Mediterranean, talk about Hamas killed Americans. And apparently they have some live Americans. And I, I want to enunciate a, a position on this. I don't care if they were kidnapped and taken into the Gaza Strip wearing a MAGA hat. And I don't care if they were kidnapped and taken into the Gaza Strip wearing a AOC t-shirt. What I care about is their American citizens. And I've not yet heard the President of the United States speak to this fact communicate to the American people about what happened in long form and effectively explain what's going to happen next. I, I agree. As I said earlier, uh, President Biden needs to uh, find communication skills that are not always in evidence with him. He's really got to speak to the American people about what's happening and by the way, to return to something we discussed earlier, he, he should also say, in one way or another, I'm not sure how directly uh, that, that could be left to, to you know, his, his brain trust or whatever, but he should also say that the Republican attacks on, on the administration that are seeking to profit off of all this at this time are unacceptable. And, and by the way, um, that's going to continue if and when we find out more horrible things about what the terrorists are doing to Americans. It's going to get louder from the Republican Party. You know this as a former Republican. And 
I don't see any signs, at least as of yet, that, that the president and his brain trust are, are prepared for that. And that's a secondary concern to what you're talking about, which is communicating with the country. Um, but it certainly has to be, it should be on their minds. Um, I, I, don't, I don't hear anything, neither do you. Last question I have for you is, is this. I have a, I remember distinctly, you know, kind of my, my first philosophical question that I would ponder as a kid, right? You know, that you know, I've been in a class was if a tree falls in the woods and no one is there to hear it, right? Does it, does it make a sound type of stuff? Mm -hmm. Do you think the Biden administration has any grasp around the dimensions of the propaganda campaign against it that has been executed and carried out uh, from Fox News across all of the derivative uh, extremist conservative broadcasting channels, streamers, podcasts. Do, do, do they have in, in your estimation, through conversations, experience, proximity, talking to people, do, do they have any idea what it is that they have been facing and are facing? I I remember the George Clooney movie, um, and I'm completely blanking on the name of it, The um, about the Nor'easter off of you know, Massachusetts in, in the late 90s in the fishing boat. And, you know, the last scene is the 100-foot wave coming at the boat, which they which they won't survive. Do, do, do you think they have any appreciation for what they have sustained over this presidency with regard to that? I, I think the answer to that is complicated. Um and I, my, my, my sense is that having talked to a lot of these people about these types of topics from time to time over the years, um, that there's a bit of a split approach or a bit of a split in the understanding of the moment. When you look at how Biden steps forward to condemn attacks on democracy and uh, condemn white supremacy in January 6th, you get a glimpse of somebody who clearly understands the nature of the threat, right? But then you turn around and you're here, suddenly President Biden is saying something like, my friends on the other side of the aisle, I don't understand why they're doing this. As if that's going to communicate to anyone anything about what they're actually doing. And it, it sounds when he talks like that, that he's essentially alluding to some sort of um, idealized former time when comedy supposedly reigned and, you know, you could talk shame Republicans into uh, operating on behalf of the country and the public good in a bipartisan way and to, to stop essentially lying all the time and propagandizing all the time, right? Um, and so there's, there's not enough in the Democratic Party as a whole of a real understanding that they are in an information war with the right. And I and a, a few of us, uh, you know, Brian Boitler at, at formerly of Crooked Media has his own Substack now comes to mind, um, have been pushing them to engage these information wars with an understanding 
that they're up against a massive propaganda and disinformation network that really is immensely powerful and reaching millions and millions and millions of people and is really sustained and nourished by the Republican Party on a mass scale. And I don't see that much of an indication or really much of, at all of an indication that they see it that way. We'll leave it there. One of the most astute political and global columnists observing, explaining, writing about the events of our time, Greg Sargent, The Plumb Line, Washington Post. Real pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, Steve.